0: This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from the state capital of Tallahassee, which is renowned for being the hottest place in Florida during the summer and the coldest place in the winter. Seems the weather is just as polarized as the legislature. Today on Sunrise, an in-depth look at a controversial abortion bill that would force women under the age of 18 to get consent from at least one parent before getting an abortion. The bill has been delayed, but not for long. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's the eyes of the law enforcement community. A Senate committee has approved a bill allowing police and deputies to use unmanned drones in certain circumstances, but authorities promise they certainly won't use them to spy on us. There are high hopes for hemp as a new cash crop in the Sunshine State, but one of the people in charge of the hemp program at the University of Florida says there are all sorts of problems growing stuff here in Florida. Our studio guest today is veteran capital reporter Mary Ellen Kloss, the author of a rather troubling story about the future of newspapers and local news in the digital age. We'll also check out your daily calendar of political events and update you on the latest misadventures of Florida Man, including a suspect who told police his name was Ben Dover. Not his real name, but a pretty accurate description of what eventually happened to him. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, November 13th. Opponents of a bill requiring minors to obtain consent from their parents before getting an abortion managed to run out the clock in the Senate Health Care Committee, but it appears they've only delayed the inevitable. Senator Kelly Stargell of Lakeland is the sponsor of the bill, and she says underage women should be forced to talk to their parents before undergoing the procedure.
1: In the same way that we've required parental notice in multiple other areas and parental consent um, in areas that are much less uh, uh, important, such as tattooing, ear-piercing, Those things require parental consent as well. I think it's only prudent to require parental consent in something as serious as having a medical procedure. Right now the situation is a child can just get a a casual note or be told or or not even the, the securities that you would have had in the past and be able to be further victimized by having a quiet abortion and come back again and a quiet abortion and come back again and there's nobody who intervenes on behalf of this child. That's why I feel so strongly for this bill. The majority of children... Do not fall into that minority of kids who are abused. A person like me, a person like you, who I was also, I thought for sure my mother would kill me when I told her that I was pregnant underage. It was a wonderful time in our relationship when I did tell my mother that I was pregnant. She advised me to have an abortion. I chose not to have the abortion. But through that process, we are closer. I have other family members who didn't do that. They went on and had the abortion. And there's been a forever wedge in that relationship because... The person feels the guilt from never including their family members in something this vital, the person who's shown them unconditional love. That's why I feel so strongly for this bill.
0: But Laura Brenzel with Planned Parenthood says there's a lot more to this bill than just parental consent.
1: This Trojan horse of a bill poses a
2: dire threat to all abortion rights in Florida. Forced parental consent laws, like Senate Bill 404, have been shown to put youth at risk in even more danger. But the truth is that if this bill becomes law in Florida, it will put all of our abortion rights at risk. One of the key backers of this bill, Senator Dennis Baxley,
3: admitted recently that passing this legislation is the first step in a much
2: larger and more sinister plan to have our constitutional right to privacy reinterpreted so that access to abortion is wiped out in Florida. Well, Senator Baxley, we're here today to put you and your fellow senators on notice that we will not stand for your secret agenda to ban abortion in Florida.
0: Senator Baxley has become the boogeyman of the pro-choice advocates because he's admitted the parental consent bill is a vehicle to get the Florida Supreme Court to reconsider a 1989 decision saying abortion is protected by the privacy amendment in the state constitution. Baxley is also troubled by the low birth rate of white babies compared to the birth rates of immigrants. And Chrishell Bailey, with Generation Next at Florida a University, says that's an argument rooted in racism.
3: Even in this divisive climate of rampant hate speech coming from elected officials, Senator Dennis Baxley stands out for his extremely racist and anti-abortion rhetoric. Yes. He proudly parrots white, su- the white supremacist replacement theory that has been linked to the recent hate crimes including mass
1: shootings. He supports forced parental consent bill for that same reason.
0: Senator Baxley didn't have much to say during the committee meeting, and he really didn't have to. Republicans defeated more than a dozen amendments filed by Democrats who are trying to defeat the parental consent bill. But thanks to all those amendments, they managed to run out the clock before a vote could be held, and Baxley was frustrated by the delay. I just want to say what we've witnessed is delay of game, and I think this lady deserves a vote on Rose the bill. And I'm
3: sorry. Thank you, Senator Baxley. And with that, uh,
1: Senator Baxley moves we adjourn.
0: Opponents managed to delay it, but there are more than enough votes to approve the parental notice bill at the next meeting of the Senate Health Policy Committee. A bill that would allow law enforcement in Florida to use drones for crowd control clears its first committee in the state Senate. The sponsor is Senator Joe Gruters of Sarasota.
2: Senate Bill 520 would authorize law enforcement agencies to use unmanned aircraft in limited specific situations. The bill adds greater specificity and limitations on these authorized uses. It does not amend, alter, or limit any constitutional privacy protections specifically the bill authorizes law enforcement agencies to use drones to assist the agency in crowd control where the crowd consists of 50 or more people assist the agency with traffic management except that the agency may not use the drone to gather evidence to enforce traffic infractions and to facilitate evidence collection at a crime scene or traffic crash scene.
0: Grutter's drone bill soared out of the Criminal Justice Committee with a unanimous vote, but it's not a sure thing. The same committee approved his bill during the last legislative session, but it crashed and burned in the all-powerful Rules Committee. A dozen sheriff's offices and 32 police departments in Florida already have drones. State agriculture officials are pushing for the production of hemp as Florida's next big cash crop, but it's not going to be easy. Jerry Fankhauser is the assistant director of the University of Florida's hemp program, and he told members of the Senate Agriculture Committee there are all sorts of complications in growing hemp here.
2: I can tell you with much confidence that industrial hemp can grow in the state of Florida, and it can also struggle and die in the state of Florida. That's my take-home message. If you look at the adaptability of the Chinese cultivars, the fiber in the dual-purpose grain fiber, you'll see some really what we would consider approaching optimum growth. Um, Looking at the European varieties, uh, similar type varieties uh, in terms of fiber and dual purpose, but these varieties, uh, generally speaking, struggled under a tropical environment or near tropical environment. Uh, We brought Canadian varieties down to the state of Florida and put it in our variety trial, uh, in our performance trials, and they, in general, did not perform very well.
0: Fankhauser says you can't just plant hemp in the ground and expect things to work out. You have to use raised beds because there are too many weeds in Florida and way too much water.
2: Um, At our Alachua uh, County location near the town of Hague, we had eight inches of rain the first two weeks of July. And we had a really acceptable looking performance trial with grain and fiber varieties. We lost the vast majority of that in five to six days. And so the, the general term that we've used for years is hemp does not tolerate wet feet. And I think it's going to be very important, and we put out our uh, initial publications, we're going to be talking about the fact that uh, growers that want to uh, get a cultivation permit and grow industrial hemp need to look at their better fields, well-drained, the ability to have water on demand, but also to make sure that water gets off that field.
0: Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed wants hemp production to begin early next year, but after being briefed on the program and the research going on in Florida, one senator said there are still more questions than answers. However, the chairman of the Ag Committee says they are, quote, cautiously optimistic. Next up on Sunrise, a conversation about the state of journalism and the future of local news with Mary Ellen Kloss, the Tallahassee bureau chief of the Miami Herald. She's been covering the Capitol for more than 30 years. But first, it's time to pay some bills.
2: We all know that guy who says he knew Trump was going to win long before election night. Had he known about Predict It, he could have put his money where his mouth was and made a little extra cash in the process. Predict It is like the stock market for politics. You can buy and sell shares in future events and elections both foreign and domestic. During the 2018 midterms, Predict It beat other national pollsters like Nate Silver in election night predictions and it wasn't even close. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Sunrise listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predicted.org slash promo F-L-A-P-O-L.
0: Next up on Sunrise, a conversation with Mary Ellen Kloss. She is the Bureau Chief of the Miami Herald here in Tallahassee. She is one of the veteran members of the Tallahassee Press Corps. and recently had the chance to get away from the zoo, spend nine months up at Harvard as a Neiman Fellow, and taking a look at our industry in general and some of the th- things going on. And what she found is not exactly thrilling. Welcome to the show, Mary Ellen.
3: You're, I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: So getting that Neiman Scholarship gave you a chance to look at the – I don't know what, what's the term – The strange underbelly of journalism and what you found is rather disturbing.
3: Well, what I looked at was the decline in local journalism. Um, I have been a reporter in Tallahassee for 30 years. I've covered, um, you know, I've worked for a couple of different organizations and as our industry has evolved and the internet has become a a presence of um, our local journalism's changed. And, um, essentially, this wonderful thing called the internet, you know, brought us immediacy, convenience, um, and reach, but it also meant the demise and the death of the business model on which traditional newspapers relied.
0: And as of yet, no one has figured out a way to make the, the new model work. Am there, I correct on that? No.
3: In fact, I'm. I'm, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic about the future. I don't think... Newspapers, legacy newspapers are going to survive because I don't think that they have a model that's working. Now there, there's, there's a possibility that things could evolve um, and we can talk about that, but um, at this point we're not there.
0: And what has it's all been the internet, right? The explosion of information. Suddenly, you get it for free. So why pay for a newspaper?
3: Right, right. And newspapers, you know, initially thought we should give away our content for free. People are going to read read us. And you know, the the industry started to change as the consolidation of newspapers happened as early as the eighties, long before the internet. Right. Um, We weren't perceiving that the you know television had an impact. Um, people's uh, reading behavior changed. And, and you know, the in, the industry is to be faulted, I think, for not identifying how what readers wanted. And so newspapers started consolidating. And um, then when the internet came, it just exacerbated the problems that, that we weren't really paying attention to.
0: And the, the biggest impact in reading your story is on local news, local government, the sort of thing that We all sort of took for granted when we were growing up as as we journalists out there.
3: Right, right.
0: What is happening on the local front?
3: Well, I think that is something that's under, um, not paid enough attention to. I mean, everybody underreported, underreported. Right. (laughs) You know, I think we hear a lot about what's happening with the decline in newspapers, but what we don't see is the impact it's having on. Um, the loss of local coverage and, and what that's doing to decision-making. And I, you know, I... I
0: you actually I, came to the conclusion it's costing us money. It, it means budgets right. get bigger faster. It's salaries go unchecked. Right. There are all sorts of ramifications.
3: Yeah, I think it's having an effect on democracy. I mean, as simple as that. Um, there isn't a lot of research that looks at what happens when local local journalism dies and I, I spent my years sort of being an evangelist at Harvard by talking to all the professors in, at the Kennedy School, professors at the law school, professors in the business school, and trying to encourage them to do the kind of research into behavior that that's needed because th- – for example the 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 in report you cited there is a report that came out of Notre Dame and the University of Illinois and they were finance professors and they wanted to see what's a good way to measure what happens to government um and how you know what are some ways that input impact government so they decided well let's look at their the news diet in a community and how much how much attention is paid to uh, uh elected officials well when they found communities that had an absence of journalists checking the city council or the school board, they found a direct correlation in the cost of government so that when watchdog reporting declined, they actually saw that bond debt went up, salaries went up. And just think about that. That's because people weren't asking questions. Nobody was paying attention.
1: They
0: knew they could get away with it.
3: Yeah, yeah. And you know that that's kind of um some of the the i think empirical things that that we can connect with, but we also have kind of our gut instinct right about what happens when people aren't watching, yeah
0: because um, we know what we would do if people weren't
1: watching
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know and and journalists have traditionally been the ones that were you know we sort of felt there there is an obligation to do the um checking on government, because these are elected officials. These are people that, um, you know, the public has sort of a a right to know what they're doing, and journalists kind of took it on themselves as an obligation to not only just check them, but to provide information. So when you don't have local journalists writing stories about what your city commission is doing— The bad stuff that they're doing and what they they think they're getting away with, you also don't have them telling the stuff about when they get it right. And so that that dearth of information feeds into people's distrust of government. It also feeds into their fear that things are being controlled by others they don't agree with.
0: Do you also see a corollary there with the the rise of what I'd call third party reporters or journalists? They they come into here they act like journalists they, they try well, let's take Irwin jackson here in tallahassee for example mm-hmm. he's holding city officials accountable for a lot of things they do which is a very important thing that newspapers used to do journalists used to do right. but at the same time he has an agenda he has right. an axe to grind so it's not like you have someone who is starting out from an impartial stance
3: yeah yeah and and you know those people get a lot more agency than they would in in Normal. There, there would be somebody that would be checking Irwin Jackson's claims just as much as they were checking the people he's he's critical of. Um, you know, I think what happens is there's manipulation and manipulation of of what pe- the information people get. People don't understand and don't have time to evaluate the source. Um, and so, the the other thing that. Has is a, has a huge impact, and I think this is especially critical in an election year. is Is social media and where people are getting their information. We already know that the Russians created uh, websites that look like fake news organizations. You know, with these with classic uh, traditional newspaper names like the Courier and the Denver the Denver Courier, and that was the the place where they put. The conspiracy theories about uh, uh Hillary yeah. Clinton, and people started believing it and circulating it and and putting it you know giving it the kind of uh, oxygen that made it p- seem real um, that is exactly how things get um, out of kilter, and that th- those are the th- when you don 't have um a solid, trustworthy local news media. There's there's room now to fill the gap with with fake with these fake news organizations. And, you know, I think as time goes by, the absence of of having local news reporters also means that people don't have any interaction with them. They don't know what to expect.
0: And you have no idea who to trust, who is a legitimate source and who is just a provocateur.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Where do you see the future? I mean, is there a future for journalism now?
3: Yes, I mean journalism's not going to go away, but what we do do need is some opportunity for um you know, we need to get stable, we need to stabilize where we are. I think um the legacy news organizations that are based on for, a for-profit model um are are struggling. I mean, it is the thing that I that alarmed me more than anything is that when I spent a lot of time looking at the financials of the major media companies less left in this country, with the exception of the big ones that are doing very well, the, you know, the New York times, the Washington post, the wall street journal to some degree. um, It's, it's very evident to me um, that it is falling faster than anyone gives it credit for. So every quarter you'll see that there's yet another, um, Scary statistic coming out of the, you know my company, the McClatchy Company, owns the Miami Herald and thirty papers around the country. Every quarter we are dropping and declining like like an elevator falling down the shaft. It's I I really can't underestimate it enough. Um, it I mean I I don't mean want to be alarmist, but things are falling super fast, and I. You know we're, we're clawing for dear life. Now one the, the places where there is hope is that the finan- the foundation and the nonprofit philanthropic uh, world has identified the problem. and there are, there are places like the Knight Journalism Center. Um, they're spending a lot of money and they've decided to put 300 million dollars in the next five years into local journalism. So they're picking and choosing where they're putting that money. The interesting thing to watch is that not much of it is going into for-profit organizations. Um, I think that is a telling sign and so there is there's some way they're finding ways to sort of lift up journalism using philanthropy there's There's other startups happening all across the country um, that have models that are based on both philanthropy, subscriptions, and sponsorships and the ones that are successful are the not for profits um, and I think that is the way of the future. It is in some ways you know a little bit like the public radio model where that relies on some
0: uh, have government sources they government, have, they, have government money. they have private donors they have they they're they say they're non-commercial but they sell commercials like crazy. exactly
3: sponsorships, right sponsorships the whole they're thing they're called sponsorships yeah. right um but they're not for profit so they don't need to be paying shareholders um and and that's a huge thing so a really interesting thing just happened in the last week and that is that the salt lake city tribune um the the owners of that um, the Huntsman family decided to buy out what was left of the share shareholders, kept, kept, brought it private, and then they asked the IRS if they could go for not as a not for profit staff status. Uh-huh. They suspected that the Trump administration would not be favorable. They expected this would take years for them to get the not for profit status. It took them a matter of months. Wow. The IRS has now indicated that a newspaper can operate as a not-for-profit and that means they don't have to pay one little uh, you know lever now they can fun- continue to get sponsorships they can get foundation money um many foundations are only willing to give to not-for-profits so and then they're, they, as long as they can continue to beef up their journalism, I think as when the public becomes aware of the fact that they need to subscribe if they want to see this local journalism, then I think that's the equation for maybe finding hope.
0: Okay. And any uh, last minute tips for young aspiring journalists? Is there a future for them?
3: Yes, there absolutely is. Because I think we're going to continue to see more startups and opportunities for, for, um, some of these new, you know, new publications happening, and journalism is just never going to disappear. We always will. We will always need them.
0: Our guest today has been Mary Ellen Kloss, bureau chief of the Miami Herald in Tallahassee. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. On your political agenda today, the House Health Quality Subcommittee meets at 9 a.m. to consider a proposal from Representative Tyler Surrah of Marin Island that would allow pharmacists to test and treat patients for influenza and streptococcus. The Senate Military and Veterans Affairs and Space Committee meets at 10 to take up a bill by Representative Tom Wright of New Smyrna Beach that would lead to enhanced sentences against people who commit aggravated white-collar crimes against 10 or more veterans. Senator Randolph Bracey of Orlando and House Democratic Leader Keone McGee of Miami are holding a news conference at 10 a.m. to talk about their bills allowing college athletes to receive endorsement money. Senator Janet Cruz of Tampa and Representative Nicholas Duran of Miami are holding a news conference at 1215 to discuss legislation that would cap patient copayments at $100 a month for insulin supplies. The House Agriculture and Natural Resources Subcommittee meets at 1 to take up a bill by Representative David Smith of Winter Springs that would increase penalties for people who kill bears or possess freshly killed bears outside of designated hunting seasons. The House Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee meets at 1 to take up a bill by Representative Elizabeth Federhoff of DeLand. It would designate Interstate 95 in Florida as the Purple Heart Memorial Highway. The House Workforce Development and Tourism Subcommittee is holding a panel discussion at 3.30 about automation and artificial intelligence. At this point, you can insert your favorite artificial intelligence slash politician joke. The Senate Environment and Natural Resources Committee will receive a presentation at 4 p.m. about recommendations from the state's Blue-Green Algae Task Force, which was created to help address problems with toxic algae in waterways in South Florida. And the Enterprise Florida Board of Directors, which is chaired by the governor, meets at 9 a.m. in West Palm Beach. And time once again for the continuing adventures of Florida Man. You remember McGruff, the crime dog, the one who urged everyone to take a bite out of crime? Well, here's a case where crime took a bite out of the cops. A Florida man who was arrested after lawmen found more than 40 grams of cocaine after a traffic stop in the Florida Keys ate part of the seat in the officer's car. 37-year-old Melvin Stubbs of Homestead tried to make a run for it, but was brought down by a taser. After placing him in the backseat of a patrol car, deputies say Stubbs chewed off and apparently ate a large piece of the seat, causing at least $1,000 in damage. He is charged with cocaine trafficking, resisting arrest, and damaging the deputy's cruiser. Finally, a 22-year-old Florida man is busted after telling a Pinellas County deputy his name is Ben Dover. The guy also flipped his middle finger at the officer and fled on foot, but didn't get far. Turns out his real name is Andrew Layton. He was charged with two misdemeanors, obstruction by a disguised person, and resisting an officer. The deputy had asked for his name in order to issue a trespass warning for being in a city park after hours. That's it for this edition of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee for Florida Politics.